Hi everyone, George here from this episode's future, but your past, displaced in time like a mosquito in amber. I'm recording this intro to put in front of the bonus episodes and explain what the heck is going on. As you may have seen on Instagram or heard at the end of the Chud episode, and probably episodes going forward from that, Best Little Horror House in Philly is coming to an end this year. There are a variety of reasons, but to summarize quickly, I have some other projects that I'd like to work on but can't with this show eating all my time, plus the implosion of Twitter made it difficult to do a variety of things that keep the show running smoothly, like booking guests and getting it in front of people, which skewed the fun-slash-work balance. I'm aiming for an end date of October 7th, 2024, the fifth anniversary of the show, and a nice springboard out of here. That also lines up nicely with 200 movies covered by Best Little Horror House in Philly on the main feed, if you include the Patreon previews of Extro 2, Solaris, Freaky Friday, and Synecdoche, New York. This does not include the episodes where I was a guest on someone else's show, even if it was hosted here, or a non-movie episode like The Last of Us Part 2, or I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. But I also don't want the rest of the bonus episodes to languish behind the paywall forever, or even just vanish. They got a lot of work put into them too, and so many great guests generously gave of their time that it just wouldn't be fair to them either. So I'll be slowly releasing all the Patreon episodes to the main feed, starting with the non-movie spotlight episodes so that they don't skew the count. Then after the show's conclusion, the movie-specific episodes will be next. You'll hear this intro at the beginning of each one, so sorry. As I wrap this up, I also want to thank the patrons this episode was originally made for. It was so gratifying to have people support the show in that way, to say that they thought it was good enough that they wanted more, and were even willing to pay for it. I'm incredibly grateful, you helped me strive to make the show the best it could be, and I encourage other people to support independent creators as well. Thanks! Enjoy the episode, everyone! Hi everybody, I'm George, and this is another Spotlight episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly. This month we're joined by returning guest, Michael Swain. How's it going, Michael? I'm back, bitches! (laughs) (laughs) In the spotlight. (laughs) They tried to cancel me, but I'm... Hell yeah, yeah. the the Swain pound is going wild. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, they're doing my signature (laughs) hand gesture, which is too rude to describe even. It involves a basted turkey. Hey, hey George. Uh, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me back, man. I'm excited to chat, especially considering the topic at hand. Yeah. Which, spoiler alert, this is my favorite film of all time, so. I got thoughts. (laughs) I'm really excited for it. We didn't get enough existential dread the first time you came Mm -hmm. on, and we talked about Lars von Schreer's Antichrist. And so, yeah, this month we're really getting into it. We're talking about Charlie Kaufman's directorial debut from 2008, Synecdoche, New York. Yeah, I mean, why don't you tell us a little bit about just how you came to this movie, if you saw it in theaters, uh, that sort of thing. Sure. Well, I remember my first experience with a film that I didn't immediately grasp because it was my first time being exposed to something that at all had any kind of vagary to it was 2001 A Space Odyssey. And my dad took me to like a re-screening or something of it and was like, this is a very important film. It's coming to town. I think you should see it. And I was so frustrated. I was like, but what is the giant baby? And I was too young at the time to understand what what is honestly a fairly simple metaphor, you know, metamorphosis leveling up. He's returning with some kind of knowledge from the aliens. Spoiler alert for 2001 A Space Odyssey. But I don't think I've ever felt that feeling more than when I saw Synecdoche, New York for the first time. And it actually, several of my favorite, favorite films, because No Country for Old Men, I also went, what? That was, what? (laughs) At the end, in the theater. 
And I could not have been more wrong. All the pieces are there. And it's very, <laughs> and I think Synecdoche is a movie that plays to the top of your intelligence to an extreme degree. It doesn't fuck around. It's extremely obscure and arcane. And it's unabashedly complex, which can make it difficult to draw the meaning from if you're not engaging with the material. But I find it to be the most highly rewarding material I've ever engaged with in the film medium because it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. Like, I can't... It is endlessly meaningful. And if you're interested in deriving meaning from visual symbology, like going, oh, uh... He wears that person's face because in some way they are the same. And ah, that resonates with me. Right. He took his face off. <laughs> it's a mine of, yeah. There's just an endless supply of like tautology in this. And reminds me of, I got a similar feeling from uh, Get Out, great film that feels like encoded with so much meaning that it's almost overwhelming. But Synecdoche, I think, is a lot trickier for people. The, the messages are not... Even Get Out is easier to access the... Like, you can cheer when the TSA guy comes and saves him. You understand right. everything that's going on. This ends with, like, you honestly... If you're following it at the plot level, I think you can easily be like, I don't understand what the last half of that movie was about. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, I think pertinent to this podcast, famously... Charlie Kaufman, of course, doesn't really do things traditionally. The writer-director, this is a directorial debut. And he wrote, you know, another banger of his adaptation was his attempt to adapt a novel. And it's nothing like a traditional adaptation to the point that if you wrote that novel, you would feel like, well, he didn't really adapt my novel. He just wrote a movie. In right. uh, similarly, Kaufman has said that this is his attempt at a movie in the horror genre. So even though I think some people might be scratching their noggins, I believe I can explain why this is a horror movie, first and foremost, how it's a horror movie, and how I think it's the most eloquent statement I've ever encountered of a very basic scary thing, which is, isn't it very sad that we have to die? And that is one of the, that is not the only scary thing, but it's a pretty primal scary thing. A lot of horror movies try to summon that demon and uh for my money synecdoche new york makes me feel it the most i am terrified of dying after watching this movie <laughs> yeah i mean at the end of the day that is what all these slashers and everything are trying to capture is mm -hmm. oh my god what if you were being chased by someone and on the verge of death and this does really capture that in a much more emotionally honest way, I think. Yeah, a lot of horror... I mean, there are a subset of horror movies, of course, where it's the horror of betrayal, the horror of, you know, sexual assault, or like any topic you under the sun that doesn't end in death, necessarily. But I do think 80 to 90% of horror movies, the threat at the end of the day is pain and death. We all get mm. this as animals. <laughs> and Synecdoche is just... Not only a brilliant treatise on pain and death, ultimately, but along the way, I think, truly an adept display of a nonstop assault of mundane horrors. Mm -hmm. Like, things that can happen that... He, basically, I think in this whole movie, I mean, he says so many things. But I do think one of the things Kaufman is saying is, Oh, they asked me to write a horror movie? Guy in a hockey mask stabbing you? That ain't scary. You know what's scary? <laughs> Your daughter absconds with your ex-wife who teaches them to hate you. Mm. That is scary, dude. And that shit will happen to you <laughs> or could happen to you. <laughs> like right. that actually has a non-negligible chance of occurring. Or um, 
you're just brushing your teeth and the goddamn faucet breaks off and hits you in the eye. Like, that's scary, man. I feel like that's what Kaufman is saying a lot of the time in this. Yeah, yeah. The randomness and chaos of life is much more terrifying than the chance of, of some masked maniac on the loose. More, definitely more resonant in the sense where you're like, oh, God. O- almost, <laughs> I can understand people saying, well, this isn't a fun horror. I wanted fun horror. This is not right. fun horror. <laughs> Real no. horror. It is certainly is. Kaufman was already a prolific postmodernist when he put out this movie. He did write such hits like you said, Adaptation is amazing. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is another one, being John Malkovich. Great. He also adapted Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which is a movie <laughs> that I really like. Yeah. And the nice thing about this movie is that Charlie takes the David Lynch approach where he said, I don't really talk about what the movie's about because it's about what it's about to you. So it's hard for me to say yes or no, because then it becomes like, well, I was wrong. It's not that. But if it's causing you to reflect on something or interact with the movie in a certain way that's interesting for you, then I'm going to support it. So already every interpretation is correct. Love that. Yeah. And I think that's a very magnanimous, fair minded thing to do with your art. That doesn't necessarily negate the game of trying to guess what the author's true intention was, because I do think he had intentions. I guess that's a long way of saying, like, I still think I'm right. I think I'm, my theories about what he was doing are correct. Having the seen this correct. movie 10 times. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I know better than the dude that wrote and directed it. Uh, let's talk about the title first. Mm-hmm. Merriam Webster's defines synecdoche as Ooh. a figure of speech by which a part is put for the whole. Now, this can be a microcosm or a macrocosm. Saying, I need a hand, for example, is a microcosm synecdoche because you need the whole person to help you. And a macrocosm synecdoche would be like saying, Philadelphia won the Super Bowl, when really it was the sports team, the Eagles. (laughs) All hands on deck was the one I was taught in school, yeah. There you go, yeah, exactly. And to get more specific, the staging of a play or the watching of a movie that examines one person's life can stand in for examining troubles that plague humanity at large. Right. Yeah. It's also a play on the town of Schenectady, mm-hmm. zip code 12345, which is fun. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. And I found this amusing quote from an interview in Vulture where he, Kaufman said, as soon as I finished the script and sent it to Sony and Spike, I came up with a bunch of titles. And this was the one that I liked the best. People say things online that just aren't true. And yet they say them with such authority that they become true. Everyone thinks that the movie was originally called Schenectady, New York, and then I decided to call it Synecdoche because somehow there was a stolen copy of the script that was put online and that someone took the title page off it, since maybe that would indicate where it came from, and typed up their own title page, but mistitled it. But why would I call something Schenectady? It's not even a title, you know? It's got (laughs) nothing going for it. (laughs) It's true. Whereas Synecdoche, if you think about it for a second, which is the theme of this film, think about it for a second. You go, mm-hmm. oh, it obviously means a bunch of stuff. Um, it is the very crux of the nature of a symbol, right? In a, in a way, any symbol is a small thing that stands in for a larger thing. And boy, this is a shelf chock full of those. Like all yeah. he's doing. And film itself is a thing that stands in for the whole, as you said, which means that he's already playing with things nested within other things, which if you've seen the film, you know, is incredibly thematically appropriate. And of course it concerns a writer director who's trying to write and direct a play that stands in for life, but then ultimately grows so large that it absorbs all of life because the only way to truly depict life is 
to live life because life is the thing itself, which I think is also a primal message that I appreciate so much from this film that's very well like hewn in this is uh, it is what it is. Like things are the things themselves. It's funny that we try to reduce everything into a little story that will resonate. That's a cool, we do get a lot out of that. But at the same time, in some sense, of course, no story can do anything other than approximate, right? Everything is the thing itself, irreducible in complexity. Right, exactly. And I think that that is kind of an optimistic message at the end of the day on a certain, on a certain level, you know, that there is like, well, living life is like the most uh, exhilarating capture of life that you can have. (laughs) Yeah, it's just horrifying because the guy we sympathize with doesn't realize that till maybe arguably the last second of his life. (laughs) (laughs) Like you said, Charlie was asked to write a horror film. So he said he was going to write about the things that really scare him. And so he went with the passing of time and by association, the inevitability of death, isolation, loneliness and regret and illness. And he said specifically that he obsesses about the signs of illness and speculates wildly in a way that is very relatable, where he's terrified and also doesn't want the confirmation, so he just puts off seeing a doctor in the hopes that it goes away. Oh, nice. Yeah, which Philip does quite a bit in this. Right. And these themes definitely crop up in his other movies as well, and he has developed an interesting style, I think, where his movies do rely on genuine, genuine emotional immersion, but it's balanced with the distance that he creates by working with metatext, irony, dream logic, and like these magical realist worlds that are fantastical and absurd, but he still engages skeptically with the myths of those worlds like they're real. Yes, absolutely. And then he takes it to the extremest possible degree in terms of attention to detail. Right. Like I still just this viewing noticed more times that because if you haven't seen it, this will be a little confusing, but Sammy, the actor who plays him, who's been following him for 20 years, can be spotted in multiple ways throughout the beginning of the film before the film breaks reality, as if to say, no, reality was always broken because there was always Sammy lurking in the background. And I'm still catching it like a Where's Waldo game, new times where I was (laughs) like, oh, Sammy, that's Sammy in the corner. That was his shoe behind the tree. Look, it's terrifying when you first start noticing it, too. Like when I uh, he's being spotted. Yeah, yeah. When he's like zipping up his daughter's jacket and Sammy is just like tucked behind like a post. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, God. And it's interesting that there's even two layers of breaking that reality because, yeah, he is everywhere and he is following him at all times. But also, Sammy never ages despite everyone around him aging. Right. And this is in a movie where it it also means something. (laughs) It's Caden. I forget his last. Catard. And Cotard syndrome is a syndrome where you believe you're dead or you're missing your blood or something like that. Right. And this is in a film in which, of course, the lead character, Caden Cotard, is directing a version of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman in which he gets rave reviews for having young actors in old age makeup. Right. And then by the end of the movie, which is a trick he did in adaptation as well, it's in a meta sense also doing that as if to say... I'm I, Charlie Kaufman, am a good director, too. Look, I'm going to do the thing that I said was good directing earlier in the film. Yeah. And yet Sammy stays the same and ultimately is doomed to right jump off the set and kill himself when as his sole point of divergence from Caden, who didn't kill himself at the last second or was stopped from killing himself. That's a new one for me, man. That literally that's what I love about this film. 
why doesn't he age? I haven't actually developed a theory around that, but that's so cool. Yeah, Yeah. it's got to mean something because everything means something. (laughs) Right. I did also find these two interesting quotes from Charlie Kaufman about this idea of uh, these fantastical worlds where he says, the whole idea of literal realism, it's all a contrivance and a convention that we accept. So why not explore the larger realm? Yeah. And then more specifically tying into this movie, he said, uh, as it relates to authenticity, he said, I really like artifice and I really like reminding people that they're watching a movie. And I really like the idea of having people question the veracity of what they're watching. So by mixing things that are possibly real with things that are clearly not real or are questionable, I don't see it as a paradox. I've always liked fake worlds, and I like sets, and I like illusion, but I don't like being lied to, and I think movies lie a lot. And maybe I'm trying not to lie by saying that I'm lying. Right. All film is, and this goes back to Brecht and Brechtianism, right? All all film and all, I mean, at that time, stage is artifice and the idea of oh, I thought the whole purpose of making these little stories was we were trying to illuminate truths. Right. And you can only do that by having a distance. And if you're very honest with yourself, you start to wonder sometimes, now I worry that I'm just projecting my truth, my biases, and the way I view the... Is it true, true, with a capital T? Or am Mm -hmm. I just blah, blah, blah? Maybe I'm full of shit. So I should probably add an addendum at the end that says, remember, this is just a play. I could be full of shit. Think for yourselves. And that's been such a popular tactic ever since Brecht started doing non-traditional sets that literally invited you to realize this is a play. This is a play that I think a subset of artists are like, yeah, you should always have that caveat. If you're being scrupulously honest, you should always at some point at the end of the movie go or throughout the fabric of the film go and you figure it out (laughs) like that's kind of the onus is on all of us right right to live our lives i think that even to that end the fact that kaufman tends to have a easily ascribed stand-in for Mm -hmm. him does play with that even though he said that it's not necessarily true that they are like uh exactly a one-to-one or whatever yeah there's usually a charlie though or someone you right. can point to and go, I mean, that's Mark Twain, right? <laughs> or that's, yeah, that's Vonnegut there. He's inserted himself, yeah. Right. And I think that this plays into what he told Terry Gross, where he said, being in my head is what I have to offer. He's interested in a sense of community that comes from the author revealing themselves and letting others see their reflection in it. So that's what emerges in his work as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The titular synodocal stand-in for humanity is Caden Catard, played by De King. Philip Seymour Hoffman, (laughs) absolutely incredible in this. Yeah, tour de force. And he's a theater director who is falling apart both physically and mentally. This wasn't necessarily directly related to this movie, but there was an interesting quote from him in an NPR interview. From a process standpoint, I thought it was interesting, where he said, It's important to investigate the character's life story and really go thorough into it because an actor needs to genuinely advocate for them. He described himself as a public defender for his characters. Yeah. That's very interesting, especially considering some like Love Eliza or Devil Knows You're Dead. But yeah, this movie in particular plays a lot with romantic irony, and it does position Caden as a Byronic hero. You know, he's sensitive, solitary, and he's like guilty. He embraces his personal suffering. Sort of the traditional archetype is like Hamlet when people think of this, and they even both do a play within a play. (laughs) Yeah, true. But the subversion and tragedy of this story comes from his lack of ability to embrace the chaos of existence, which is also a big part of that archetype. And he's unable to use it as fuel for the play, which is a direct representation of Frederick Schlegel's concept that the world outside of our perception, 
which is called Numenon, mm-hmm. is at all times itself and in the process of becoming not itself. And we can see that in how he is constantly trying to capture his life statically in, uh, with the play. But the play can't do that. It, life won't allow that to happen because it is some, It is in the process of becoming. And so he gets lost in it as he hides looking for comfort and control in absolutes, but he can't participate in his own life meaningfully. And he's a director who doesn't do that thing where he says, decide for yourself, right? That's right. his fatal flaw as a if you're wor- working on the Shakespearean level is he thinks he can do it. He thinks if he just nails the play, it will do everything and be all things to all people and define right. everything and be the capital T truth. And it doesn't need to say, remember, it's just a play. No, no, no. It's going to knock it out of the park and be the real true art thing. And that's not a thing. You can't achieve that. So he's constantly doomed to never, as as I think very intentionally, of course, his play becomes less and less relevant to the world outside. Because in the world outside, it's now like a science fiction dystopian apocalypse. What the fuck? Who cares about his stupid play about New York, like apartment living in the you know, early 2000s. It has nothing to do with life anymore. By the time you're finished constructing that monstrosity, it's already irrelevant. Exactly. And the play and the movie itself kind of work as a dialectic on Schlegel's process of, I'm going to attempt this very long German word here, Selbstbrechranken, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> where they project their ego as a divine creator while also mocking or rejecting it as limited and false. And you can see how Kaufman, like we said, embraces this with absurdism and things that point out the falsity of his heightened world, but Caden invests so much selfhood into the play because he thinks that that will be able to capture objective truth instead of just reflecting his subjective view. Yeah, and uses foils to do, right? We get his love interest. Claire uh, or Hazel? Hazel, thank you. Yeah, he's got a couple, but I mean Hazel this time, who lives in the burning building, the burning house, is... diametrically opposed in the sense that she actually does get something out of life by accepting the arguably low quality shit that that life (laughs) handed her. She gets a house that's constantly on fire, which we all get in a sense. And she gets a relationship with a guy who just randomly was living in her basement in a very surreal (laughs) way. Like it's the realtor's son just needed a place to crash and he lives in the burning house's basement. And then uh, we flash forward a few years and they're married with kids. And it's like, is that how she would have written her life? No, not necessarily. No one gets that. And she was able to accept that and suck some of the joy out of the marrow of living. And by comparison, we check in with Caden and he's still like, I'll be happy later. I'll figure it out later. I just got to crack this thing. And that's the true horror is he's even seeing her small amount of joy that she's managed to grab is what drives him to almost kill himself. Makes him resentful. Right. Right. He doesn't even accept he can't connect to other people through empathy until the end when he is forced to basically because of a state of learned helplessness, because he has been like belittled and removed from his own project to the point that he's now playing uh, the house cleaner who cleaned up his manipulative like semi-evil ex-wife's apartment and like he's reduced to playing that role so he's an actor portraying a housekeeper cleaning up his ex-wife's apartment when she's not home just for a chance to like quote unquote be around her or be in her space and yet that exercise for him we get the impression is finally able to make him empathize truly 
with a moment of bittersweet, joy, sorrow, whatever you want to call it, intense feeling that is not his own. Mm-hmm. Meaning, because the play is constantly obsessed with him and his life and the revelations he's having. But this is actually something he didn't experience. It's Ellen's wish that she had had a, a child, a female child, and never did. Like, I always wanted a little girl and I never had one. That's And he truly experiences the pain of that and uh, at the very end of the film. And I just think that's the end of his arc because it's literally the first time he's possibly empathized with another human being truly in the film and once he's accomplished that he's allowed to die (laughs) and it is an interesting arc you know the whole time he's kind of this almost parody of a consumed artist and when he can't impose this being onto the becoming he's sort of driven mad by grief as alluded to by the king lear reference and uh, certainly introspective to the point of solipsistic myopism Mm mm-hmm And for those who don't know, solipsism is the idea that the self is all that exists, and this becomes both interesting and dreadful, terror in its truest sense, when the self starts to degrade. Yeah, I'm truly alone, there's nothing else is real, this is just going to decay, and that's that, is a very scary thought as well, yes. And it's bolstered in this movie by the absurdism that does play into the idea that there is no real objective, immutable reality, just the manifestations of our mind and, scarily, any afflictions therein. Right, and we get that through a constant assault of information, some of which is true, some of which feels true, some of which feels like it's in Caden's head, and some of which feels like it's magical realism. Right. And so there's this style that's becoming popular now of sensation overload to create tension. Uncut Gems comes to mind, the new show The Bear comes to mind. And... I, on this rewatch, appreciated how much Synecdoche, I think, really pioneered some of those techniques much earlier because, gosh darn it, it doesn't quit. Like the beginning of this movie, and it's all diegetic, which is what I love, or it's so seamlessly dovetailed into the world. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel sweaty. It doesn't feel like we cut to something horrible, we cut to something horrible, we cut to something horrible. No, it's just a scene of a man waking up because his alarm went off. But if you pay attention, you notice that on the radio... They're having a conversation about how everything decays and dies through the metaphor of winter. And they even say, goodness, that's very harsh, isn't it? Well, (laughs) perhaps, but it is truthful, which, of course, (laughs) applies to the whole film. The first offer of the entire film is the daughter's poop is green. So the Mm -hmm. allusion to... Is someone sick? We don't know. Then on the radio, we softly hear that an earthquake in Kashmir has killed 75,000 people. And Caden says, I don't feel well. And then it cuts to him reading the paper and he goes, Harold Pinter died. Oh, oh no, wait, he won the Nobel Prize. (laughs) So it's like, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what is good news or what is bad news. Anyone could get sick at any time. And yet all that's happened is incredibly mundane. But there is this very real sense of unease where you're like, yeah, man, that's life. It can go off the rails very quickly. Yeah, and I think that this is playing with the idea of delusion being sort of the counter to authenticity and honesty. You know, we are, we did already mention that Qatar's delusion is that schizophrenia. There are also auditory hallucinations associated with it that can mm-hmm. sound like the stage directions that Caden receives at the end. And mild cases present with despair and self-loathing. Yeah, that's and that's where you think there's a multiple variations, but you think you're a corpse is a very common version of it. Right. is my understanding. And then there was another in reading up for this, there was another there's another person in there. 
Oh, it's like uh, when you see a register and it's just a list of the actors' names. One of them is named after a delusion where you don't have, where you think you don't have blood, which I think has to tie into that scene in the beginning, where which is another horrifying thing, right? What if yeah. you scare your kid and your kid is just freaking out and you can't calm them <laughs> down? Where he explains to his daughter that pipes exist and she's creeped out by that and then he says well veins are like little pipes and they're in you and you're fine and it's filled with blood and she's like i don't want blood i don't want blood (laughs) so really the horror of having the relationships that you care most about disintegrate is set up from the very beginning and woof the emotional nadir of the film is for me and what i truly think is is really a horrifying thing like horrifying to behold is he debases himself and tells a series of lies about himself to his daughter because that's what she needs from him in the moment. And she says, like, just admit all this horrible shit and I'll forgive you. And we know none of that shit is true. And he says, okay, yeah, I'm sorry for abandoning you to go have homosexual intercourse with my which and it's even doubly infuriating as you're watching it because you're like but they're lesbians why are they (laughs) upset about that it's like and and that's the point it's contradictorily who cares everyone just hates you sometimes Mm -hmm. that's the way it is and how fucking awful is that you maybe you're right that you lose anyway fuck you (laughs) and the moment that she says no i don't forgive you no Ugh, it's like, uh, yeah, beyond a gut punch for me. I, I mean, it elevated this, of course, to me being like, now that's scary. Like when people want to show me other horror movies, I'm like, <laughs> no, you know, it's scary. That scene in Synecdoche where the daughter disowns the father. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's brutal. It yeah. really is. And speaks to that delusion, right? The I'm not real. I'm not connected. I'm not here. No one sees mm-hmm. me. I'm a corpse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And unlike Caden, who seems to think that the only way to be truthful about existence is to make something huge and all-encompassing, we do have his wife, Adele, played by Catherine Keener, who is also incredible. Incredible, as always, yeah. Yes, and she shrinks it down. Her full name is literally a delicate art. uh, Adele Lac Cotard. (laughs) Oh, I didn't get that. Hell yes, this movie, (laughs) everything is something. Yep. And there's a bit of adaptation, actually, that aligns with this idea where the Nick Cage version of Kaufman says, There are too many ideas and things and people, too many directions to go. I was starting to believe the reason it matters to care passionately about something is that it whittles them down to a more manageable size. Mm -hmm. But it's not just the size. Adele finds success because she can create something new. She's not just trying to capture the past. She's creating empathy and connection with the subjects of her paintings, seeing deeply into their beauty. Also, I do want to just say that Adele's paintings were done by Alex Konevsky, and I really thought that they were spectacular. They're great, yeah. And that even folds into the moment we were discussing earlier, because at the end, as Ellen, he realizes that Ellen, one of something very important to Ellen was the time that she got to be a subject for Adele, and it made her feel beautiful so through the eyes of another human, he sees the value of of a someone who's hurt him. Right. Yeah. So it's just every piece of the thing is comes back and is used in some way for emotional payoff down the line. I also think it's notable that I, for my money, I truly believe that this kicked off because it's such a perfect symbol. The almost always female character who makes tiny little things as their art 
in horror is now huge. Hereditary is the one that immediately comes to mind, but there's a couple others where yeah. the lady makes little dioramas or little dollhouses of horror or little paintings. Yeah. It's such a powerful image that I think people have been repurposing that one. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that character is great. It is such a great sort of dynamic between Adele and Caden where he's sort of trapped in the past attempting to ring truth from sort of a hall of mirrors by distorting people more and more each time. And this thematic load-bearing wall of authenticity is also alluded to with the Capgrass delusion, another delusion here. That's um, the one I was trying to think of earlier, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's it was written as the name of the resident in Adele's apartment and is a delusion where someone believes the people around them have been replaced with identical doubles, almost like they've been cast in a play. Ah, uh, yeah. Great. <laughs> Okay, so the blood one is still Catards then. Yes, right. Catards encompasses the corpse thing and the blood thing, and Capgrass is that everyone's an imposter. That's right. I mean, I don't want to spend too much just priming the discussion of this movie, but there were a few other things that I will be pointing out as we go through. Obviously, the idea of tumult beneath the surface and repression is a huge one. Mm -hmm. There's a ton of inferno imagery. Devils, flames, red is everywhere in this movie. And I thought that it was interesting that it is balanced by a few angelic references as well. I think there is a lot of evidence that Caden killed himself and is in hell or purgatory. And so, you know, I, I think uh, at, even if I don't know if I believe that theory to be true, I think it does at least merit some discussion. Yeah, I haven't heard that one. Miscommunication is everywhere, not only the larger scale interpersonal communications, but even just constantly interpreting homophones as the wrong one. Mm -hmm. It's constant. And these help to reinforce the gulf between subjective experiences that everyone is having. And there's also a ton of gender dysphoria in this movie as well. Mm -hmm. It absolutely plays into Judith Butler's idea that the various acts of gender are what creates the idea of gender. That much like everything in this movie, it's just another performance, and it's possible to live a facade because it's what people expect, but it isn't honest because the truth challenges the audience. And Caden's Byronic attributes, all those things that we said make him fall into this archetype, cause him to be alienated by masculinity as 2008 knows it. Yep, and yet, of course, he'll end his life as... A middle-aged woman, right? in some sense. <laughs> There's also, of course, the hubris of attempting to understand the universe in any way. <laughs> and, of course, the ripple effects of choices. Uh, this is brought to a pretty fine point by the preacher's monologue. But Charlie himself said that depending on the day, the idea that there are a million strings attached to every decision can leave him filled with wonder or paralyzed with fear. Yep, that's... And I think Vonnegut is approaching the same thing when he says, we don't know enough to know what's good news and what's bad news. Right. And the Nick Cage Kaufman in an adaptation also considers, what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change and they don't have epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing are and nothing is resolved? Um, you know, I think that it is interesting that so much of this is pulling for Caden to finally complete his arc. And, you know, it, it might not be as appealing to mainstream audiences as the newest blockbuster, but even with the surreal elements of this movie, it does feel more honest because it has an emotional truth to it. Mm -hmm. Last little bit of context. There was a budget of 20 million and it made about four and a half back. Critical reception was mixed as well with as many top 10 lists as outright condemnations of the movie as indulgent and pretentious. But Ebert called it the best movie of the decade, not just yep. the year. Well, he said the best movie of the 2000s, and I think he meant the millennia. 
Wow. You heard it here. You heard it <laughs> no, here, No, yeah, he didn't, but that's how I interpret it because I love it so much. And I think this is the rare case where something that comes off pretentious is actually just incredibly smart and you didn't put in enough effort if you didn't get it. And if you didn't, like, there is a ton of stuff that really is pretentious. And when you dig in and dig in, you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't mean anything. Right. This is not that. I can see why people whose job it is is to watch every movie that comes out might go... I didn't get a lot out of that. That just seemed like pretentious nonsense. I got to move on to the next movie. Right. But if you watch this movie very seriously several times, I don't think you'll come away thinking pretentious. You come away thinking someone put a lot of effort into making this like woven with meaning very densely. Yeah, I think absolutely that the ability to revisit it multiple times has a huge role in in coming away from this movie and and really understanding the depth of it, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought that it was like the first time that I watched it, I didn't even rate it on Letterboxd or anything because I was just like, I don't like I have so little like I, I that's just the base layer. <laughs> I didn't absorb much the first right. time. I also <laughs> felt that way. And now I got to go back with the understanding of the beginning and the end mm-hmm. and see how it all fits into the middle section there. And I think that, again, that's playing with the metatextual elements. That's part of the movie. This is a movie that begs to be seen more than once. Absolutely. All right, let's actually get into it now. Cool. So it starts with a young girl singing the Schenectady song, and it's, it is interrupted by a 1902 poem by Rainer Maria Rilke called Autumn Day on the radio. The beginning of the end, they say, which definitely comes up again, and the poem is as follows, or at least they only, they only say the last verse of it, which I also mm-hmm. thought was interesting, but... They say, whoever has no house now will never have one. Whoever is alone will stay alone. We'll sit, read, and write long letters through the evening and wander on the boulevards up and down restlessly while the dry leaves are blowing. It is harsh. (laughs) (laughs) Harsh but true. Exactly. And as far as the poem goes, Jungian psychology would say that the house is your interior self and your well-being. Uh, Caden's house has just dissolved, a house on fire, some might say. Mm -hmm. So he builds a subjective world in his mind where his wife is a malicious shitster whose actions cause his daughter to end up a tattooed dancer. He's alone wandering on the streets to Claire's displeasure, reading and writing long letters through the evening to his long-gone wife in her house. So it is, you can see how... uh, as as early as this radio scene, it is a, a synecdoche for the movie at large. Yeah, and almost every single moment or line is in some way. Like, one of his first lines is, I'd prefer there not to be a scar. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's his deal, right? He doesn't, he just wants every, he, he wants the impossible, which is he Me. wants to live life without being damaged. Good luck, buddy. Right. <laughs> Outside, a white-haired man watches Caden go and get some depressing mail. It's bills and a magazine called Attending to Your Illness. Yeah. And for, I think, for retired people. It's like right. a retired person's magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and it is such an interesting open to me because the world doesn't necessarily seem surreal until things start to build, like you said. And Hoffman had an interesting quote where he said, Life doesn't splay out in front of you like on a road. It kind of stacks on top of itself. And these moments of surreality are that that stacking. It's the one decision early on that causes these huge shifts. And we see it played out in a literal sense when later on, and he's talking to like his cast 
and saying, uh, I'm going to give you your notes and everything. And you, the one guy's like, oh, it's been 17 years. And it's mm-hmm. just layers of people standing on top of each other the way that life uh, is a blend of all of these years put together, basically. Yeah. And that meaning is layered within, like he invites us to think the metatextually right away, because literally when he's directing Death of a Salesman, he says, keep in mind that you, the young actor, are just imagining being Willie Loman, but we, the audience, know that the true tragedy is that you, the young actor, will one day be as old and sad and lonely <laughs> as those of us who are that understand. Right. Like you're headed for the same sorrow that we're living now, and we can see through it from the audience. And it's like, ah, okay. So, yeah, it's very good at priming you for how to approach it. There are three owls on the wall. Uh, or rather, there is, uh, like, the markings of three owls, but one of them is missing, and it's just, like, the dust there. Mm-hmm. And this this beginning is is setting up a very important part of the movie, although it's not really noticeable at the beginning the first time, which is the fluidity of time. And it does become much more evident later. But even this early, the dates in his paper range from September 22nd to November 1st. And mm-hmm. crucial to this subjectivity is the perspective of the movie, because the editing suggests that it's all one morning. I, oh, it's never occurred to me that it's multiple mornings. Fascinating. Yeah. That it's like a montage. And there are a lot of things going on below the surface. Like we said, uh, he puts on a cartoon for his daughter about animals having viruses. He himself doesn't feel well on the inside of their house. The pressure is building in the pipes and it does force its way out. The pressure builds until it cannot be taken. It explodes the faucet while he's shaving and cuts open his head, sending him to the ER and his long lasting medical journey. Right, his persistent navigation of the healthcare industry. Right. I think I have blood in my stool. That stool in your office? (laughs) (laughs) They say go see an ophthalmologist, and he says a neurologist. (laughs) And that's the first of the homophones there. Or not even the first, but uh, one of the the homophones. And his pupils aren't properly opening and closing. He's not seeing the world correctly. Mm -hmm. I also did love on the way back that, first off, there's this plumber moment where he is corrected and, and, and Adele says that it could be a man or a woman, which does play into whoever can play the role is correct for mm-hmm. it at the end for Caden. But also, yeah, you already kind of mentioned one of my favorite scenes in this, which is Olive chanting, I don't want blood. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, that is so relatable. I also don't want blood, kid. That's just <laughs> nasty. <laughs> yeah. And then the vagaries of like, just what do you tell your kid the truth about life at any you know that's always right. a scary decision because Catherine Keener says don't no it's okay honey you don't have blood to calm her down and he goes no we shouldn't do that I don't think we should tell her she doesn't have blood <laughs> so it's like you can't win right or you right. don't you know you raising your children you're gonna fuck up yeah is another minor horror the next scene he's at the ophthalmologist and he says thanks for getting me in right away but the calendar behind him says it's March which means 3 months have passed. <laughs> That's so good. I didn't notice that. That's hilarious. He sends him on to a neurologist, urologist, cuz then he's trying for it not to be a neuro. He wants it to not be the serious one at right. that point and the guy's like, "No, I said neurologist." <laughs> God, after is, all, the eyes are part of the brain. Yes. Is uh, that right? That doesn't sound right. <laughs> right as in morally correct or right as in accurate? Uh, accurate, I guess. And he just makes a note in his chart. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. One thing we haven't really talked about in this movie is that for as 
grim as the messaging may be or may not be, it is very funny. Like, there are a lot of very, like, laugh-out-loud jokes to this. Oh, yeah, incredible gallows humor. Like, the next scene when they're at, or in a a scene or two, there's there's a lot of scenes packed in quickly. But somewhere in this area, they're at therapy, and I think it's one of the funniest, shortest scenes I've (laughs) come across in a long time. Where the lines are, the whole scene is literally, can I say something awful? Please do. (laughs) I've fantasized about Caden dying. That's bad, I know. Caden? Does that feel terrible to hear? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> That's so funny yep. and so dark at the same time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he is at rehearsal for, like you said, Death of the Salesman. Michelle Williams yeah. gets conked on the head by mm-hmm. a piece of set in the same spot that Caden got hurt, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. And Death of a Salesman was originally called The Inside of His Head, which is another oh, interesting I didn't thing. know that. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And there are key similarities between Caden and Willie Loman, uh, a desire to be loved and respected, suicidal tendencies, a preoccupation with dreams of the past. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, the idea that he's doing this ironic casting of a young man at the expense of the actor is then mirrored by the idea that there is ironic tragedy in Caden's extreme introspection still not prompting the realization that he will also become Willie, whose fate is sealed in the same way that the actor will. And eventually Sammy will become his Ben a projection of himself to help try and make sense of his life. Wow. Good stuff. Yeah. I uh, Death of a Salesman, very good. That's a very good play. Arthur Miller, that guy knew what he was doing. Oh, yeah. At UCSD, the theater department was doing a production of Death of a Salesman, and an old man wandered in and sat in the theater audience, and we were like, that's not allowed. And someone went to go escort him out. And it turned out it was Arthur goddamn Miller. What the? And we were like, oh. <laughs> I guess you're allowed. This is now very high stakes. <laughs> I And what's funny is at the time, I was like, he's still alive? <laughs> I didn't know. I thought he was from history. And he, yeah, he lived in the area. And he just wow. saw that it was being, and he walked in on a rehearsal. Incredible. Oh, yeah. Well, that's yeah. cool. Things do continue to degrade for Caden at home and physically. Like you said, he's at couples counseling with his wife. In addition to the very funny jokes, she also literally couldn't be further away on the couch. She's practically lying down. Right. Yeah. And she says Olive didn't change things as much as she'd hoped, which is interesting that uh, this this resentment has been simmering for a while. Mm-hmm. And he ends up asking her, have I disappointed you somehow? And she says, I don't know. Everyone's disappointing. The more you get to know them. (laughs) Not a good answer. (laughs) At rehearsal, he again hangs out with Hazel, played by Samantha Morton, uh, on a bench outside. She is also fan. I mean, look, I'm going to keep saying it about every actor because everyone knocks it out of the park. (laughs) Actually, Sammy's good, good too. Yeah. Yeah. Was anyone bad? I can't think of anyone. Not for my money. Yeah. No, it was a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) She says she's reading The Trial, which is a Kafka play. And she says, oh, I'm an idiot for not knowing about it. Turns out it's famous. But when he rebuffs this, she gives him additional line readings to get a little flirty. But when he asks for the next one, she says she can't tell him he's got to do it himself. And he cannot. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he's trapped in a complicated bureaucracy-style machine system that will destroy him by the end. So the trial makes perfect sense. Exactly, exactly. Adele is working on some comically tiny paintings at home and tells Mm -hmm. Caden that she can't come to opening night, which does bum him out. And so he has another flirtatious encounter with Hazel, after which she invites him to go smoke weed in her car. 
but he declines because we'd make some horny. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she says, you're zero fun. And there's an amazing cut from like, you see her like pained look in the bar and everything when he says no, but there's just like a second of her driving home with tears on her cheeks. And it's just amazing. Yeah. And she really is the very easily accessible symbol of, well, that was right there for you to enjoy. And right let it go so what do you really want out of life i thought you were trying to make yourself you're constantly talking about how you just wish the clouds would break and you could be happy but caden in many ways is doing this to himself mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. is part of the core horror of it right yeah he gets home to tell his wife and her friend maria that the play is a hit uh, maria is played by jennifer jason lee she does the christian bale oh good good for you here mm-hmm. <laughs> and just devast i mean yeah, that one really hit me as a creator who's done plays. That would be rough because uh, Catherine Keener said she couldn't come because she was so busy working on the paintings that night. And then he comes home at like four in the morning and she's staying up smoking weed with her friend laughing. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you could have, if you had that much energy, why didn't you just come to the <laughs> show and then do your art stuff after? And then she comes on the second night and as they walk out is immediately like, yeah, it was all right you really just are contented doing other people's shit. You have no creativity or no creative (laughs) ambitions. Is that really where you're at? And you're like, that's not the best feedback to get either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're, they're literally like, Oh, it's all about your artistic satisfaction, which is of course, like he isn't getting any out of it. And Mm -hmm. so it's a battle needle him. Hazel buys this cute little house on a cute little street. And you know, you got to have your deal breakers for me. The house being on fire at all times is mm-hmm. one, but Hazel isn't super disturbed by it. <laughs> yeah, smoke inhalation becomes an issue at some point, but it takes <laughs> decades. Right. And the realtor sympathetically says it is a big decision how one prefers to die. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is where she introduces Hazel to her son, Derek, who's been living in the basement. And I didn't clock that that wound up being her husband the first watch through, which was very funny. Yeah, she's like, and I have Derek. Yeah. <laughs> It's just you love one of the, as again, Vonnegut said, one of the purposes of life is to love whoever's around to be loved. Yeah. It's a good strategy. Absolutely. And Kaufman said that the burning house is a metaphor he hesitates to get too specific with, lest he limit somebody else's opportunity to take it and make it theirs. But that ultimately, quote, you don't have to worry. Who cares? It's a burning house that someone lives in. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. I, I mean, I like that Kaufman is humble about his own. Actually, I don't find him pretentious at all. Like, mm-hmm. if you read his, I think he's very, very intelligent, and yet he is pretty understanding of, I just happen to be intelligent. There's lots of other <laughs> stuff wrong with me. Like, he's not full of himself, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I find him pretty level-headed for someone who is so bright. Yeah, absolutely. We get some more strange cartoons. This time it shows Caden and a jackal waiting by a rotten carcass and a ghost clock floats up between them while a jackal says, when you're dead, there is no time. Yeah, and there's some other, I forget, but there was additional foreshadowing in the cartoons that he starts to either hallucinate or since this is a heightened reality, maybe those are literally the cartoons in this universe. It's impossible to tell, but there's some very interesting foreshadowing and symbology in the things that are on screen in the cartoons. Definitely recommend looking there for clues when you're watching this. Yeah. I mean, literally the next one is him being him and a lamb being led to a corral where they'll presumably be slaughtered. 
Right. Also, side note, when he checks the paper again, the obituary on the left talks about Mawa and Paramus, which are towns extremely close to where I grew up. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that was fun. Adele tells him that she wants a separation, that she's going to Berlin for her exhibition with just Olive. And she tells him as she leaves, the whole romantic love thing is just a projection. So, And we'll talk when I get back. Right. That never happens. And never returns for the rest of her life. Yeah. He takes a walk with Olive. And first of all, it's this is, I think, the funniest homophone mix up when she's like, you could have both kinds referring to psychosis and psychosis, the mm-hmm. like lesions on his face versus the mental uh, disorder. Yeah. And then, yeah, this is also where Sammy is looming terrifyingly in the background. <laughs> and where he tells his daughter that your mommy is crazy, which is mm. not cool. And right. it's one of the only glimpses we get into him being like, oh, maybe we are witnessing Catherine Keener through his lens. Yeah. Who knows if she's even that bad, you know? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of sub- uh, lot of subjectivity at play here where the fact you, that it doesn't... You can interpret it. You could call it anywhere within a range of right. realities. Yeah. <laughs> He's in an extremely messy basement when he sees himself in a chemotherapy commercial. Plus, as you'll notice on second watch, plus Ellen and her mother are having their picnic there. And that's in the commercial. Right. We all know that sometimes it can feel purging to get a good cleaning in, and so Caden does just this, scrubbing the entire basement clean while the TV plays in the background. With a toothbrush. Ugh. Well, at first. It's, right. it's like a spit polish situation. <laughs> he really goes for it. Mm-hmm. A few things of note, like you said, in the things that play on TV. The first is an image of him wandering in the fog, and another is another cartoon where his lookalike is falling with no parachute into the ocean, where he's swallowed by a fish, and a song says... There's no real way of coping when your parachute won't open. You're going down. You're going down. You fell. Then you died. Maybe someone cried, but not your one-time bride. (laughs) Right. At that point, it very much feels like a projection, but it ramps pretty cleanly from what could be a real cartoon into, oh, the TV is projecting his thoughts. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And even in the cartoon, you can notice that in the outdoor scene, Sammy, there's a creepy old dude watching cartoon Katard from behind a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Katard goes back to his therapist, and something that I think is really interesting is happening in these scenes where she's stepping on the end of his sentences like they're in a play and she knows the lines. Right. This is one of those meta things that kind of toys with yeah. the structure a little bit. And the horror of a therapist that doesn't is not listening to you at all, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who is supposed to be helping you by listening and just has no interest. And it's he, a part of his contentious relationship, I think, with the medical situation and throughout the entire film. Yeah. Just oh, that absolutely. no one ever wants to help him. Body or mind or soul. He never feels supported. And what did you make of the pustules spreading to her feet? I thought that was interesting that the therapist starts to get psychosis on her feet. Yeah, I thought that it was kind of playing into that idea of authenticity again. Her clearly kind of grimacing through the pain, the the idea that beauty is pain, appearance is more important than the truth of discomfort. Um, especially when she asks him what would be real when she sells him the $45 book when he's like, oh, I want to put on something real. Speaking so. of funny jokes, yeah, I love the line. I've got a book I think might help you get better. It's called Getting Better. <laughs> the The book titles are so funny. Yeah. And I he changes the title of his 
magnum opus many times throughout the movie and i think all of those is actually interesting yeah each title has a different they let you check in with what he thinks he's doing at each given time uh i love that it eventually becomes communicable diseases of bovines or something like that <laughs> yeah among bovines when he's lot when, at his most cynical Right, exactly. When he feels like he's just being shepherded around. Humans are just cows being shuttled around, yeah. While Adele is having a party because she's famous now, uh, Caden starts to seize, and I did think it was interesting that the 9 uh, I almost called it 911, <laughs> the 9-1-1 operator calls him ma'am, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the first bit of gender dysphoria that I noticed, at least. Yeah. Uh, other than, like, light homophobia is woven in in a way that makes it seem like gender norms and sexual orientation norms are part of their, like, their hangups that they carry around. And then right. that becomes more and more fluid as the movie goes on, yeah. Yeah. Adele is on the cover of Elle magazine. And while he goes to the hospital that is, like, one step removed from Jacob's ladder <laughs> to get his results... <laughs> And it's synaptic degradation from some kind of fungal infection that causes seizure, and he's going to lose control of bodily functions like salivating and crying, and obviously, these are undeniable truths that he's losing control of, hunger and pain and fear. He goes out for a drink with Hazel, and she invites him over to her place, which he hesitantly agrees to, but not before we get some more slippery time here. Uh, He thinks it's been a week since Adele left, but it's been a year, and it is, I think, that's a moment where it really does, like make you check in with yourself about it because logically it makes sense that it's been longer than a week if she's been gone and has a magazine spread and everything right but you can also understand how it might feel like she just left yeah and it is that interesting middle space where we're ramping into more and more surreality but we're not there yet because i love that that can be interpreted as he's just saying it feels like it's been a week or does he literally not because the way he delivers the line you think he might not understand how much time has passed, or this might be a magical thing where he's experiencing time differently than the characters around him. But I like that it's still, this movie's great at staying, I think really when the burning house comes in, you're like, okay, there's magical (laughs) realism. Okay, got it. But up till then, it's very restrained in its magical realism. Yeah. And and he literally- Then it goes all out. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. It certainly does. He begs Hazel, will you help me forget my troubles? Yeah, and it even, that struck me as a false, so you know how horror movies are famous for false beats where you think the monster's going to jump out and it doesn't, and then it does a second later. This is the synecdoche, is the Kaufman, like, this is the Kaufman version of that, right? Because for a split second, when Hazel says, I want you to beg me on your knees for a kiss, you're like, oh no, is she going to be horrible to him too? Like, is it going to turn that way? And it doesn't. She's doing it as a dom flirty thing, and it's okay, yeah. But I just thought it was interesting that it also has false, false starts, where you're like, oh no, oh no. (laughs) Yeah. So love that somewhere in here, through his therapist, he finds out that there's a four-year-old writer who's way more talented than he could ever hope to be. Oh, yeah. Somewhere in the world who's four years old. And he's four, <laughs> huh? Yeah, he killed himself when he was five. Why? I don't know. Why did you? Oh, what? Oh, I said, oh. why would you? <laughs> yeah. he does. So when they start to have sex, he can't do it. And he, he starts yeah. to cry. And he disappoints Hazel. And he says, I'm really confused. And obviously, this idea of masculinity and his not being able to perform his manly duties, I'm doing big air quotes here for the listener, Mm -hmm. gets him in his own head about shame. 
I do think it's of note that Adele and Maria seem to have a lesbian relationship that is theoretically happy with nobody performing that gender role. Right. Also, I thought that this was something that just like kind of occurred to me. I haven't fully like explored it, but I thought I would bring it up. Based on some of the names that get associated with Caden, like Little Winky and Needleman, mm-hmm. I think some of his shame might be related to like having a tiny penis. Oh, possibly. I mean, it would be if he was doing the list of all the mundane horrors his male facing character can come up against tiny dick or at least anxiety around tiny dick that's got to be in the mix yeah for sure yeah i don't think it's top of his (laughs) grievances but it's in there (laughs) i also love the sheer horror of being with someone you like and it's being flirty and you are trying to express something like an artistic truth in an erudite way. And you, and you so obviously come off as a cringy asshole. Like (laughs) the, cause somewhere in this date scene, he's trying to describe what he wants to do with this play. And he says to Hazel, we're all in the same water after all soaking in the very menstrual blood and nocturnal emissions. And uh, this is what I want to give people. And then the waiter comes and goes, okay, here's your salad. (laughs) And just like having the wind knocked out of your pomposity in front of your love interest in the way of like, wait a minute, I'm a pretentious asshole. That shit yeah. I just said was disgusting nonsense. <laughs> Whoa. I, you know, and we know that Caden is an intelligent or like good at theatrical adaptation, but I just love that the horror hits at every level to me, including the meet the parents cringe level where you're like, that was so awkward. I can't handle it. <laughs> I also do love that because it shows that even as detached as he gets, that he does dream of being like feeling a part of the totality of mm-hmm. being in the uh, mikvah with everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as he describes it, it's he's the most isolated person you've ever seen, but he wants to feel connected to everyone because he knows enough to understand that that's part of life and that's important. Right. He gets two notes back to back. First is a garbled fax from Adele asking him not to read Olive's diary, which she accidentally left behind. Mm -hmm. And the other is a grant from the MacArthur Genius Foundation. This is a real grant, obviously, but the letter itself I found interesting, saying that it doesn't evaluate their creativity during the term of the fellowship, and that they hope it will nurture a source of new knowledge and courageous ideas, both of which we know that he distinctly cannot do but wants to do. Yeah. He does tell his therapist, I'm going to put on this big theater piece, something true I can finally put myself into. Yeah, this is where we get the spooky, why did you kill yourself moment. That is, mm-hmm. I really love that. <laughs> yeah, I love it all. I, I also think the pustules might be, or at least this is something I applied to it or drew from it, because she's picking them real bad in this scene. It was like the fear that deep down your therapy, like, when they're off the clock, your therapist is crazier than you are. Yeah. Or I'm getting help from this person. How do I know they have their shit together? Yeah. You know, absolutely. his his pustules have passed to her. Wow. That's good. Yeah. I like that a lot. And the idea of just that after this, he ultimately goes on to have sex with the young starlet of his show, right? Claire. Mm-hmm. And the horror of picking the obviously wrong one. Like, I don't know. I think I feel like we the audience in that moment are screaming, Hazel, obviously, you idiot. <laughs> Like, come on, dude. Yeah, absolutely. That night, he does break into Olive's diary, and he finds a gift to send her based on her favorite color, pink, which is a box labeled nose. (laughs) Nose, yeah. (laughs) The nose box. Of course. Everyone had one. I don't know why I said it that way. Right next to the tissue box. That's what it's for. (laughs) 
He does bring together the beginnings of the cast, and he tells them his plan, that they'll talk honestly, and a piece of theater will emerge. I've been thinking of ending things. I mean, thinking of dying lately, he says. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another Kaufman movie. (laughs) Right. We're all hurtling towards death, but here we are for the moment, alive, each of us knowing we're going to die, each of us secretly believing we won't. And it's interesting because he says this, but clearly he doesn't feel it because he's not really living his life. He hasn't reckoned with it yet. Right. Or he can't apply it in a useful way to himself. He just understands the abstract concept very well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or as Claire says, knowing that you don't know is the first most essential step to knowing, you know? Yeah. He says, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So good. I also love, as far as this constantly developing play, I read an interesting quote from Carl Ove Nosgaard's book, So Much Mm -hmm. Longing in So Little Space, that I think does help to bring the reading of the play to a point, which is, what is the self beyond the story? One way Mm -hmm. of seeing it is as a place that is continually becoming, where what is happening is continually merging with what has happened in ways and forms, determined by previous experiences more or less powerful and decisive, but regardless of how rigid they might become eventually, there will still be movement. The self is a work in progress. It understands itself through its memories, but lives its life between them, in bits and pieces, in the present and in the past in thoughts and emotions. The inner is something chaotic that one seeks to control through habits and experiences, unfinished, raw, and unrefined. Wise quote. There you go. I like it. (laughs) Claire is there. She's loving what he's laying down, and they do go to get drinks, but they run into Hazel and Derek, freaking Derek. Mm -hmm. Claire gives another uh, synecdoche when she says, you're Hazel, you're the box office. Oh, yeah. And Claire encourages this project through some extreme praise, although she also reveals that her mother died last night. Yeah, very abruptly. Right. He says, why, what are you doing out? Which is a very <laughs> valid question. She just goes, I, 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 this is me, meaning we've arrived at my door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of the first or one of the very notable magical realism breaks that leads to, well, we'll get there, but some very <laughs> impactful stuff surrounding the sudden death of parents i think both of the deaths of his mom and dad are used very well yeah she also misuses freudian slip here in this moment and i think that it's interesting that the scene (laughs) says i don't don't know it was freudian about it but (laughs) yeah yeah. and it works as a counterpoint to hazel again just where you can see them on the sort of opposite ends of the spectrum not only in his life but just when Hazel is like, oh, yeah, I didn't know the trial. Isn't that wild? And Claire doubles down on, you know, like to meet. Oh, yeah. In the Shakespearean sense. Yeah. Right. And they do get married. Also, she's chosen Hazel as her real person to base her character on. Which, good Lord. Right. <laughs> Almost sitcom-esque. It's revealed that they have a kid already, Ariel, but things are tense and get tenser when he sees Olive, now 10 years old, with a full body tattoo in a magazine. And he freaks out and says, I have to go find my real daughter. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, my original, I mean, my first daughter. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, when he comes back and tries to make up with Claire, fucking dude, oh, he, this hit me hard <laughs> because it happens so fast because you just got a beat of this and you think that's over now. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I want to come back, Claire. I'm. I'm sorry. I want to take care of you, of you and Olive. Ariel, Ariel, fuck, <laughs> fuck, Ariel. And you're like, damn it, dude, you just did that. You just fucked this up last scene. How can you fuck this up again now? It is great. I love that. I also love that Claire here is like, everyone is tattooed, and she reveals a giant Satan on her mm-hmm. back. And he goes, well, 
I've never seen that. <laughs> um, I also think it's amazing. Once the magical realism stuff hits, I think you see what an abundance of riches Kaufman's given us here, only in the sense that I pitch movies and I and high concept hooky premises are usually one of these. Like a man who's estranged from his daughter finds her childhood diary and realizes that it magically records her thoughts into the future. Mm-hmm. Beautiful movie premise in and of itself. A man creates a play in a giant airplane hangar as the world ends. Incredible. Uh, a woman moves into a house that's literally on fire as a metaphor for the ephemeral nature of trying to enjoy life as it ends around you. Yeah, that's a movie in and of itself. Check, a guy check, follows. Check. Yeah, a guy <laughs> follows you for twenty years um, just to play you. Is it like that? I can see a little Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd, fucking ditty about that. Sure. It's amazing. It's amazing how many things are crammed into this in terms of sheer ideas. Yeah, Shocking. I don't know. That last one to me seems like it might fit better as an HBO show. Like maybe if Nathan Fielder hosts. <laughs> oh sure, yeah. It's yeah, basically yeah. the rehearsal is what I'm yeah. trying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he does the fielder method that's true a, a guy just follows you around to be you for no reason that is basically the rehearsal yeah <laughs> on the plane he's reading another one of his therapist books and it starts to narrate what's happening which is funny but also does foreshadow the diary later yeah and the therapist is right there and hits on him but he declines and the book is like you fucked up bro yeah i'm gonna be blank now yep and he goes to adele's gallery but they won't help him instead revealing that she has multiple husbands now And of course, this is another slap in the face that not only was he not good enough for her, but that now she has replaced him with two other men. Mm -hmm. And he meets with Maria instead, who says that she's the nanny and is the one who did the tattoo. And he's furious and attacks her. This fight scene is wild. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I think short of the scene where Olive refuses to forgive him is the most impactful scene of this arc where yeah you're you're so angry on his behalf you're so upset yeah i mean it's basically child molestation if it's true because she says she's my muse but you get the impression they're fucking and you get the impression you also get that impression corroborated through the diary but then you have to question whether that's literal magical truth or what he fears and therefore it's in the diary because he's writing the diary with his mind right right and either interpretation's totally valid but yeah. no matter how you slice it god you hate jennifer jason lee in that scene <laughs> you're like fucking get her dude yeah save your daughter bro <laughs> absolutely you know i think that it is so interesting the way that it is the when it sets up the subjectivity at the beginning of the movie it does sort of open up so many little moments to being questioned. Yeah. And not even just questioned if it is literally happening, but if it is happening in what sense is it happening? You know, the like, yeah, is she literally tattooing this 10 year old? And then beyond that, is she abusing her and grooming her to become her lover eventually? Mm. Uh, what, at what point, is the or is that the worst version that he's imagining right that's probably the horrible shit that's up because i'm out of her life exactly are they really just estranged who knows yeah exactly and she runs away and when he follows her he finds the thrown out present that he sent and using the fake tears weeps over it before having a heart attack (laughs) (laughs) death comes faster than you think the old man tells him yeah, the sheer whiplash between something very, very funny, which is he has to put fake tears in to cry that his daughter is not in his life anymore, to he has a heart attack. <laughs> so, 
God, it works so well. I guess it's a horror comedy is is more <laughs> fair to say. It truly is because it's definitely a comedy as well. Yeah. Rehearsals have begun for the play and they're recreating scenes from Caden's life. Mixed in among the scenes are his wife and daughter. Ariel is excited to see him, but Claire says, Daddy doesn't live with us anymore, sweetie. He had to go find himself, which is interesting because in his mind, that's what Adele did as well. Right. Yeah. And we're so wrapped up in his perspective that I at least didn't even notice her like starting to weep behind him as he moves on to the next duo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly you did notice because you just encoded it into your memory. But he shows bravery and courage in his work, but never in life, which is something I really picked up on a lot this time is his fatal flaw arc, which sometimes I just get lost in sympathizing for all of humanity. Like, ah, this sucks. Oh, this is horrible. But uh, they do go out of their way to show that he had opportunities for it not to be so bad and he misses them. For example, in this sequence somewhere, I'm sorry, I'm hazier than you are on like what scene exactly goes before or after what scene. But somewhere in this stretch of the film, he uh, begged Hazel to like need him and promised I will always be there for you or I just please like pathetically. And she's like, but I have Derek now. I'm sorry. And he's like, but you, I could be of value to you. Like, please need me. And then two uh, scenes later, she calls in need of a job. And he's like, I can't, re- I have an assistant already. Like he doesn't, he fucks up left and right. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just the world is against him. It's definitely his viewing of the world is against him. Part of the horror is, sure, it's horrific. The idea that your child could be turned into a tattooed stripper in a glass box. And at the same time, they're somehow happy and thriving without you. It's the double whammy. (laughs) Like that they love it and they think you're a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And yet there's the even deeper level of horror of... Or maybe I'm wrong and I am a piece of shit. Maybe I'm wrong, off base on this whole thing. You know what I mean? Like there's the doubt of the very fundamental core of your experience as well. That's woven in. Also, he does. I, I just wanted to say that is the that is the next scene. But real quick, he does also notice a poster for Little Winky and Caden mm-hmm. is the name of the movie. And they're certainly implied to be uh, intimate. They're wrapped around each other. Right. And yeah, he notices Hazel walking around, although I thought it was so funny that his greeting to her is, what are you doing here? (laughs) What are you doing here? Well, he grabs essentially prison bars. Like he's, if if you look at the way it's shot, he's inside a prison, even though she's outside. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mentally. Yep. And she says that, like you said, she and Derek got married. They have twins, she says, although she lists off three names, which is one of many missing thirds, like the owl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also thought it was funny that she works at Lens Shapers now. She's helping people see clearly, perhaps, unlike Caden. Right. He does reveal that he and Claire are separated. And then, yeah, when he sees how happy she is, he tries to throw himself off the roof. He is stopped, but not by Sammy, who was there and watching, as always. Oh, yeah. And when he gets the call that his dad died, you see Sammy lean in close as if he knows, oh, I got to study this beat because he's about to learn his dad died. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's very incredible moment where funny and horrific at the same time where, and it's all Hoffman's performance. He is on the phone for half a second or like, you know, five seconds. <laughs> and she goes, who was that on the phone? And he says, 
my dad died. They said he died in like tremendous pain calling out for me at the end of his life. And like he said many, many things. There was so little left of him. They had to fill the coffin with cotton balls to keep him from rattling around. <laughs> like, like somehow the most horrible thing that could possibly happen in detail like, was conveyed to him over the phone. They said he regretted his life and did the biggest and saddest death speech anyone ever heard. Anyone's had ever heard. Yeah. And then I love that this is followed up with his very tiny coffin. Yeah, we see the little tiny coffin that he's in. (laughs) And the first of two, really, or arguably three, depending on how you slice it, iterations of the funeral scene. Mm -hmm. I also love right in here when he says, I'm thinking of calling it simulacrum as he walks with Claire and their kid, Ariel. And she says, I don't even know what that means. And the kid... So this might be a gender dysphoria thing, or did they have multiple kids? I, I'm not even sure. But the kid says, Daddy, can I get a nickel if I don't play with my pee-pee no more? <laughs> and he says, yeah. And I just love how that drives home, like, what point is your brilliant art if it means nothing to anyone? Like, if no one cares and no one understands it, mm-hmm. why did you do this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a bit like he wove the critical response to Synecdoche into Synecdoche. Wow. He saw it coming. Time is slippery. <laughs> yeah, critics who didn't like this movie, this is you. Daddy, can I get a nickel if I don't play with my pee-pee no more? <laughs> a nickel. I love that it's a nickel. Time is still passing. He finds Olive in the red light district with a long line to see her dancing and blowing bubbles, but she has no reaction to Caden's outbursts, although he does get thrown out. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, I think, like a big time jump where he comes back and he looks much older now and he's talking to the yeah. actors. He says he's going to give them all notes about what happened to them that day and also introduce someone to play himself. And he's the, yeah, the guy who's playing Willie at the beginning in Death of a Salesman says uh, it's been 17 years. And he has, in fact, grown old, much as was foretold. And it's important to note that because Caden's Caden, the notes are exclusively negative things. Mm. It's never a a happy surprise. He believes that life only has pain in store for you. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for him, right? Like if you see the entire board of dozens of notes he's written, it's all, you had a miscarriage, so-and-so left you. There is nothing positive on the entire board. Wow, yeah, I didn't even notice that. speaks powerfully to his point of view, I think. Definitely. Hazel does get fired from Len Shapers because uh, ostensibly she had poop on her hands and she caused a conjunctivitis <laughs> outbreak. <laughs> right. I did also think, uh, you know, this might play into uh, the death purgatory stuff where she says, oh, I don't even believe in Christian school. You just try to be a good person. That's all there is. Mm-hmm. And finally, Sammy Barnathan is introduced for real. Uh, yeah. As far as the rehearsal stuff goes, his name is literally even Barnathan. So this guy's been doing the Fielder Method for 20 years already. He he already knows what he was supposed to say to Hazel all those many years ago. Hire me and you'll see who you truly are. Tom Noonan, amazing. Mm -hmm. Says Adele's an amazing artist, the best living artist, which of course makes her better than Caden. No one stares truth in the face like her sweet pussy too. How do you know that? So even this pathetic guy who's devoted his life to following you around... He's cooler than you and more in the loop than you are. Right. (laughs) That is part of the horror as well. Caden is continually degraded by even himself. Like this guy who who lives only to be him is negging him. Yeah. It's fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. But he's doing it. He is doing an amazing physical recreation of like Caden's pose and everything. He is. Yes. I did think it was interesting, 
you know, again, playing into that subjectivity, he asks, why did we leave Adele? Which is very similar framing mm-hmm. to the therapist asking why Caden killed himself. And yeah, he says, nobody stares truth in the face like her. Meanwhile, Claire is pacing and staring herself in the face, a mirror. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And also, things are. this is when things are really starting to get bad outside. Someone asks Caden to tell them when the show is opening so they can come inside. And clowns are forcing people onto buses with a destination of Funland. <laughs> yeah that's right there's some sort of nebulous apocalypse happening and at some point in here we start to see that when they go outside there's an even larger hangar encompassing their world now yep exactly so the world has become a play within a play outside the play within a play that he's doing (laughs) (laughs) sammy when he's talking to caden also reveals that adele is theoretically back in town for a retrospective at the met And he gives Caden her address so that he can go see how he loses even more of himself, he says. You know, research for the part, which means this like sycophant who you'd think would love you and be someone you could finally connect with because they are you actually is just fascinated by watching you destroy yourself. That's their interest in this. (laughs) It's really it is wild and chilling. It is chilling. And when he goes to the gallery, the first thing he sees is a painting entitled Portrait of Caden Cattard. And it's from behind, and he's got his face pressed up against a mirror wall so close you can't see it. Mm-hmm. And this is the only picture that is, like, large. The rest yeah. require literal magnifying glasses. Mm-hmm. He does walk past the angelic day spa to her apartment where there's a sign on the door, death and family, God relieve our suffering. And it, even just, the, the you know, reinforcing that through all of his suffering so far... Caden has no empathy. He won't even hold the elevator for the guy who still manages to make oh, it up. Oh, just a random old man. Yeah. <laughs> Classic litmus test of is your character decent is like, no, he won't hold the door open for the old man. Oh, well, fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he even lies about it. What an asshole. <laughs> yeah, and lies about it. Or at least, at the very least, like a coward, mm-hmm. right? Or social coward. Right. The woman, though, in the hallway gives Caden the key to the apartment because he says, yes, I'm Ellen Bascombe, their new cleaning lady. Mm -hmm. There are signs of life. There's a coffee and a running shower, but there is only a note from Adele. And so Caden cleans all night. Yep. And it says, uh, sorry, we made a mess by boning in the bed. (laughs) And there's like a literal indent of where they fucked and he has to clean it. Right. But he luxuriates Uh, in it first. Pretty accessible metaphor. (laughs) Claire is pissed. She says, are you wearing lipstick? You smell like you're menstruating. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't menstruate, so I don't know how I can smell like that. At the same time, he's saying the play is a lie because you can see through the apartment walls. He's like, it's got to be real, real. Wall it up. Make it a building. Yeah. So now we're just creating a miniature depiction of New York. <laughs> <laughs> Hazel does become part of the show, and Claire quits when Sammy does manage to reveal some truth with the play when he says mm-hmm. what Caden has been doing at night. And (laughs) Claire, I didn't say that's creepy. I quit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want you out of the apartment. The real one. You can keep this one. The set. Great line. Great line. Mm -hmm. There's a couple having sex next to Caden's apartment while he tries to sleep. So he heads to Adele's again, who has invited him to sleep in their walk in closet, which you're like, oh, very considerate Adele. (laughs) Good Lord. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He is into it, though, and he finds all of stuff in there. And the diary says she's dying and reflecting on the past, including a game where she did pretend to die. Huh, couldn't be me dying and reflecting on it, says Caden. (laughs) Yeah, and also it's a moment. So the whole diary, she has been like, I don't care about my dad. I hate my dad. And I actually think 
that would lessen the impact mm-hmm. of the final moment. So this is our false hope moment of this arc where she says, sometimes I do think about dad and miss him. And I remember a good time we had. Yeah. And you're like, oh no, there is a chance. Oh, you got to go. You got to go, Caden. Go find your daughter. Win her back. Make a connection. All, of course, so that we can be set up for the most horrible scene of all where that connection is completely denied. Yeah. And and when he does find her, he has aged again. There's another big jump. Mm-hmm. And the flower tattoos are infected and dying, so she is as well. And in this way, life reflects art, but also art reflects life reflects art in that they have literally Mm -hmm. changed form to look like they're dead flowers and a petal flakes off, which was very cool. Yep, super cool. And probably the most pain I've ever experienced from a film scene. It's for me. It's really tough. It's very tough. Yeah. Speaking of actors who kill it, I do not know the name of the german actress who plays olive at this age at this time right. but she also destroys yep. <laughs> the play like you said is now also a character in the play so they have to build smaller versions of it and mm-hmm. they're also building a dell's place now and thus they need to cast an ellen and it's going to be millicent weems she was in scrub-a-dub at the pantages mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's diane weist Again, incredible. Absolutely kills it. Yeah. And she's weirdly close to the image that Adele painted of Ellen. They get stuck in an elevator on set, and Kaufman said that elevators are a recurring motif for him because of a dream that he has where it continues to go up and up and up, but it's not hanging very well in the shaft, and it's wobbling and rickety. Mm. Not ideal. (laughs) And they literally did get stuck late at night in a location scouting trip with a ton of big electrician guys and whatnot. He said, yeah, and they had to gather their nerve and jump out, which you're not supposed to do. Whoa. Yeah. He thinks he hears Adele in the set of her apartment, but it's just a recording. Again, this idea of, like, hoping to capture truth, but it's just a facsimile. Mm -hmm. And Sammy hitting on Hazel makes him jealous, and then, yeah, his mom dies from a home invasion. Shocking out of nowhere, and, I mean, even the idea of a home invasion is shocking and out of nowhere. Yeah, and then, of course, what this movie does repeatedly so well is a thing that is objectively, at the same time, Laugh out loud funny, and your brain is thinking, that's dark, though. That's fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. So we have this scene where he invites, he lets Tammy stay, and he's like, you can stay in my parents' room after the funeral, and they walk in. Tammy is is the woman playing Hazel, we should say. That's right. Sorry. And it's a very realistic crime scene, as if his mother was violently killed in a home invasion, and he's like, oh, I thought someone would have cleaned this up and she says who who would have cleaned it up <laughs> like i don't know fucking someone not me <laughs> yeah it, i hate you don't think about that kind of thing yeah well there's a, a video game i play where you're a crime scene cleaner so i do but i don't think most people do yeah fair enough fair enough yeah and she tammy is pissed that hazel is having dinner with sammy because he's supposed to like me she says yeah, but it turns out fake you is better than real you at being you. Wow. <laughs> That's one of the horrors. I also love that she knows when he excuses himself to the bathroom. She's like, don't forget your phone. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it's repeatedly. Yeah. It's like the true horror is not the bad things happen to us in life. The deeper level of horror is the thought that maybe it's because we deserve it and we're bad. Mm. I also love that through all these years, Hazel's phone message hasn't changed. Oh, yeah. That's true. I'm rocking a 
15-year-old message. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I think it's not that unbelievable. Mine is the boring, like, you have reached one. Oh, one sure. <laughs> Mailbox is full. <laughs> Sit on it. <laughs> Just send me a text message, yeah. please. <laughs> like a normal person living in the year 2000s. He and Tammy do have sex, but first we get a lot more of the dysphoria and shame from him, where he mm-hmm. doesn't understand how she can just get undressed so casually. Maybe it's different because she has a beautiful body, he says. Can you understand loneliness? Sometimes he wishes he could be pretty like her. He might have been better at being a girl, he thinks, although he's quick to deny liking guys. Yeah. So, I don't know, a microcosm of... The yearning for gender fluidity, but the reasons we don't allow ourselves to have it. Right, right. And, you know, this again, playing with that subjectivity of how quick he is to be like, oh, no, I don't like guys. It's possible that he's still hurting from if there was some element of truth to him, possibly maybe even being bisexual and having right. had a sexual encounter with a man. Eric, some guy named Eric. <laughs> right. And that that maybe leads to the therapy and and the conflict between him and adele in the first place Mm -hmm. maybe you know he talks about how weed makes him horny maybe he was smoking weed after a show or something yeah i I do think that it it plays with this and and that he is hurting and that could be why he's so quick to be like oh no 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 like again could go either way either interpretation is completely valid i think yeah for sure it could be a serious man or he could be a sad sack (laughs) right (laughs) Things come to a head as the play once again prompts truth in real life, this time about the way Hazel, Sammy, and Caden each feel. And Sammy jumps to his death at the Tethered Maiden Hotel, which is where Caden tried to jump. You've never looked at anyone but yourself, Caden. And obviously this implies that he would have done the same thing if he hadn't been stopped. And a line from Sammy that I think is objectively pretty chilling. Watch me learn that after death there's nothing. No more watching, no love. Watch my heart break. That is one of my... That, you know, that's one of the most primal fears as well, I think, that after death there's nothing. Yeah. Tragic. Kaufman said, what can we afford to do? How many sets can we afford to build? I had these kind of conversations with our production designer and DP. Initially in the script, the Sammy character jumps off a replica of the Empire State Building to kill himself. Mm. The Empire State Building would not let us do that for reasons that I guess were obvious. (laughs) (laughs) So we tried every other monument in New York. We were this close and would have been a beautiful thing to getting inside the Guggenheim. We had stunt people signed up to do the jump. The head of the museum said we could do it. And then the lawyers said no. And so we had a location with a balcony that we were going to use for something else, but ended up never using. And we just decided that we had to use it for that. I think these kind of seat of your pants decisions are more common on movies than most people know. Oh, yeah, it's can, it's real time problem solving always. Yeah. From the one feature I've made, I can That's enough to say it's still a continuous problem solving because something went wrong. Grip truck stuck in the mud, whatever. (laughs) Someone, you know, star is sick, have to rechange schedule, prop broke. It's it's all that. So it doesn't bother me at all. Right. Well, the important thing is Sammy jumps to his death where Caden didn't. But he's right that it's just a random balcony. It's not a particularly good shot in the film. It's just a some balcony it's fine and and in some ways that almost makes it more impactful for me and just yeah i didn't need it to be the empire state building i don't know what that adds necessarily other than poetic imagery right 
At Sammy's funeral, Caden realizes that people don't want to be treated like extras. They need to be given their dues, which, -hmm. of course, raises an interesting comparison back to Death of a Salesman, where during Willie's funeral, his wife talks about how attention must finally be paid to such a person, an unassuming person who you might otherwise consider an extra if you were just walking through life, the Willie Lomans of the world. You know, the salesman who comes to sell you something every couple years. He's groping at the idea of empathy, right? He's yeah. it's the opposite of solipsism. The idea of which is sometimes called sonder, uh, the realization that ever wow, it's crazy that everyone I pass has an inner life as rich as mine is. Yeah, man, there's so many stories, and you it know, is wild. it's yeah, <laughs> which he hammers home by saying, you know, there's almost 13 million people in the world now, and none of them are extras. Wow. And you're like, damn, this apocalypse isn't going well. 13 million, <laughs> we're down to 13 million. Okay. <laughs> He does get invited over to Hazel's and huge laugh at the candles in Hazel's house being tilted because of the heat from the flames. Right. (laughs) And another one, he says, I miss Olive and the other one. Yeah. He says he finally gets it now that it's too late and that he promises that the play is going to become a play about the day before. Or is this what you're going to get to? Yeah. She the end is built into the beginning. I'm a mess, but we fit. And they finally consummate just in time for her to die of smoke inhalation. Yes. And he says that the play will now become just a repeating loop of the day before she died, the best day in his life, which is amazing to me because it's he immediately abandoned all this investment into the idea of making a platonically true perfect play that that you know encompasses the world immediately abandoned it for happiness and that is such a powerful message to me that all he really needed was to be with hazel and now he's like oh that's the key to the universe because uh it is so frequent that and there's a truth many we return to in so many times in our lives in different forms of storytelling and in just through you know is that it's people, man. Or you go like, oh, what's the meaning of life? And you get abstract and you get philosophical with it. You go on a long journey. Maybe you have some useful revelations. But one that you always come back to is like uh, connecting to another person. Like, I just want my people around me Yeah, is so core. And uh, I just feel like he's finally. What's funny is he gropes at that idea from a, again, intellectual perspective. He doesn't get it he's going to write a play that explicates it. And you're like, no, 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 just experience (laughs) it, man. He's getting there. He's getting there. But he's trying a little bit. Yeah. I also really thought that it was interesting that this is one of only two messages that he does leave for her, despite calling her several times throughout the movie. And it's after she's gone, just like he can't say things to her, to his daughter until it's too late and she's dying. And he can't get in contact with his wife to talk until she's already left. And it's just through the can't get with Hazel till the uh, very last day of her life. Yeah. Everything realizes her value too late. Yeah. This is when he does come up with the idea that the title will be infectious diseases and cattles. It means a lot of things. You'll see. <laughs> That's yeah. what he tells his assistant. Very funny. An obscure mo- moonlighting and obscure world is the title before that, and you're like, yeah, all these titles are actually decent titles. I get it. They They're all mean fun. something. Yeah, they are fun. Yeah, he's lost all. He doesn't give a fuck about the play anymore. By the way, <laughs> right. everyone is literally he, standing frozen there, which is wild. Yeah. yeah. So he ultimately lets the woman playing Ellen 
play Caden directing Sammy's stand-in who's directing the person playing him right. in the funeral scene within the play that represents the funeral we saw earlier. That's what I love about this movie. <laughs> it's as complex as it can get. It's stupid. <laughs> yeah. I do love it. I especially love that, you know, the idea that this unassuming person who's just been on set is the one who understands Caden. When she auditions, in quotes, you know, she says, Caden Cotard is a man already dead. He lives in a half world between stasis and anti-stasis, and time is concentrated, chronology confused. Until recently, he's tried valiantly to make sense of his situation, but now he's turned to stone. And I think that it is interesting that the assistant saw it as much more hopeful, but she was right. Mm-hmm. And that also he is holding hands with his assistant there, the person yeah. who replaced Hazel and is a man. Yeah. And then, yeah, she does restage the two layers down funeral. The assistant says, she's not getting the feel of you, Caden. You don't move people around. You don't talk to people. Oh, no way. Man, it almost feels also like a, with happiness so difficult to come by in this life and such a unique set of circumstances has to arise already for you to have true happiness over any length of time. Why would you let something like gender norms stand in the way? Yeah. It, yeah. Absolutely. And... She actually, it's interesting that she improvising like Sammy did while playing Caden is kind of the opposite in that her improvisation allows her to become a great director, but his is mournful and leads to his death. And so you can kind of see how this is sort of representative of Caden's fears of breaking out and trying something new and exciting could go terribly instead of well. Yeah, and he accepts the role, I think tellingly because it's a cleaning like his day-to-day would become cleaning so at the end of his life he actually spends some time meditating as it were right he does a mundane activity that forces you to focus on the present Mm -hmm. that is just a simple act of i'm gonna fight entropy today you know this is messy Mm -hmm. i'm gonna tidy it up um it's something that forces him you actually see how through a set of circumstances at the very end of his life He's forced to come to the revelations that he's been struggling with the whole time. Of course, in true Caden fashion, like just under the wire. Like he doesn't he doesn't get to bask in the contentedness he receives. He receives it at the very microsecond he dies. <laughs> yeah. And he he has so fully abandoned like taking care of it that he or does caring about the play, yeah. Yeah, he's literally getting like his every action fed to him, every stage direction and everything. Yeah, it's literally live your life in someone else's shoes for a day. God damn it, Caden. Yeah. This is what you've needed your entire life. Step outside yourself. Let go of control. Don't plan or intellectualize. Just be. And he's forced to do that just by the fact that he's so, so tired. Yeah, that he's finally doing that. And then it turns out that's something he should have done or like he needed that presentness this whole time. That's what he needed. Yeah. She also tells him about Ellen's character, that she's in an unhappy marriage with Eric, Mm -hmm. interesting, with no Mm. kids. Yeah. Tells him about the picnic that she dreamed, and she also has a dream unfulfilled as well. She has her own complicated life and even relationship to Adele, just like he said. Mm Mm-hmm. Adele dies of lung cancer, which was foreshadowed by her persistent cough, and Mm -hmm. he just persists living in the walk-in closet while the world erupts around him. He can't see anything outside of his own surrounding, much like Willie Loman, you know, he's he doesn't realize that you have to give love and respect as well to get, you know, he's like, oh, I'm well-liked, Willie Loman says all the time. He's liked, but he's not well-liked. I'm well-liked. And mm-hmm. uh, clearly, it's not the case when no one shows up at Willie Loman's funeral. Right. No. 
Caden walks down to the street and he wanders and the corpses and the therapist's book litter the street alike <laughs> as he listens to mm-hmm. the new Caden. Basically, she says a bunch of stuff about the transience of the well, world. And- may I read? Yes, Just I I'm like, I don't know. Can you be more terrifying than this? She <laughs> says, because you're forced to focus on it because it's a very droney, like meditative. It's almost like a guided meditation. Her voice mm-hmm. is very close to your ear. What was once an exciting and mysterious future is behind you. Lived, understood, disappointing. You realize you are not special. This is everyone's experience. Every single one. The specifics hardly matter. You struggled to exist, and now you will slip silently away. In this way, you are everyone. And as you are every, as everyone who ever adored you stops adoring you, because they have died or moved on, you will realize that no one is watching you, and there never was, and the world will forget you, as you lose your youth, your beauty, and your characteristics one by one. <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> shut up, lady. Too real. <laughs> she also does count off some time. Now you are mm-hmm. here at 745. Now you mm-hmm. are here at 745, or 740, excuse me, 743, then 744. Now you are gone. At the very beginning, when Caden wakes up, he wakes up at 7.45. And also, there's a clock graffiti on the wall here that says that it is 7.45. Mm-hmm. There's also a bit of graffiti but on the wall. time has stopped, right? Because right. it's, yeah, that clock ain't moving. <laughs> the uh, There's another piece of graffiti on the wall that says Caden coming soon, like some kind of mythological figure to mm-hmm. people on the streets, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. This is when he realizes, you know, or at least it started when he realized that everyone has some interiority. But now this moment of being entirely the other woman, laying his head on her shoulder like that's his real mom, does give him insight into how the play should be done. And now that it's no longer necessary, he can end it. Die, the voice says. Before he is able to elucidate it to any other living human being. He says, I know how to end the play. Oh, I figured it out. It's die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's notable that he's bonding. The person who's there with him when he dies is who says, "I'm proud of you. I love you." Is an actor portraying the mother of the character he's portraying, which I think is a powerful statement of like, honestly, the best any of us can hope for is forgiveness and love from anyone, <laughs> like <laughs> any other human being we even just happen to be around. Yeah. Like it may as well be whoever because we're all in the boat together and all humans are at core have some similarity. So like you will never get the love you want or the connection you need or the connection to the person specifically you yearn for at the time in the manner that could save you. All you ha- there you can't be saved. Like you are not special enough to live up to the infinite potential that you imagined you had in your right. youth. No yeah. one does. And in this way, you realize you're not special, which connects you to everyone. And you better grasp for that connection because you're going to be alone again soon. And that's very scary. <laughs> definitely, definitely is. There are some interesting credits even that happen here. The the first batch of three is the union, uh, the unit production manager, which was Ray Angelic, which I thought was maybe a fake name, but then also mm-hmm. saw that the German doctor was played by Raymond Angelic Sr., so maybe not. Ah. <laughs> or maybe that's him, and he just yeah. didn't have his full name there. And then the second assistant director was Jennifer Truelove, which also I was like, maybe that's a fake name, but maybe it's not. But also the white credits fade to black, 
and the song that is sung over them is it seems like it's from Caden's perspective, but it's sung by a woman and is again sort of reinforcing this character as a synecdoche, a stand-in for all of us. And it says uh, basically, life is precious and everyone's going to die, so just do your shit. <laughs> and Caden, he does barely live. He spends most of his time obsessing over his memories and trying to make sense of his experiences. And throughout, he does keep saying that he knows how to do the play. But, and that stands in for, I figured out how to do existence right up until the end. Yeah, you know, it's funny because everyone recently, of course, was raving about everything everywhere all at once. And it strikes me. So we try to be fresh with our stories sometimes, and that's good. I think you have to mark passage of time and new ideas and thought. But I also think we tell stories as a communal experience to remind ourselves of important truths that humans come to over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it's wild to me that a good strategy for living contentedly is to try and be present and try and connect with other people. That is the message of Everything Everywhere All at Once and Synecdoche, New York, and they could not be more different films. I just marvel at, I love how things can be skinned so many different ways, but boil down to like, there's only like 11 things to know (laughs) about life. Right. Really. And yeah. and we we repackage them so frequently. And it's just a joy to behold the different nuances of the way people can skin that. Definitely. Um, I did want to talk about some interpretations of what's going on. Like I said, I had a, a, some evidence for a hell option and then one other interpretation that I Please. thought might be interesting. So as far as the hell stuff, I think that he was maybe like tortured by dysphoria and he maybe didn't know if he was gay or bi or trans or what. And that it might have bubbled to the surface as hypochondria. And that I think, yeah, like I said, that maybe he did smoke some weed after a show and hook up with someone named Eric, which led to the conflict with his family and eventually his wife leaving, which eventually leads to him killing himself with the movie taking place in Purgatory or Hell. Um, We know that he has suicidal ideation, considering that he tries to throw himself off the roof, but also maybe his psychologist is Satan with the fucked up foot as a hoof. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, and it is a cloven sandal, so to speak. If you know what I mean, it, yeah, it yeah. forces that she's wearing sandals that make her toes cloven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She tells him about little Winky, who was written by a four year old that killed himself at five. And then, yeah, immediately asks himself or asks him why he killed himself. Um, but this co- connection is then later reflected in the poster for the movie adaptation of the book and also in the death of Sammy, who did spend years imitating his every move. And I thought that this connection then brings into view the way that this play and the movie itself and even his daughter's diary extend past the age that she left. You know, that he's imagining a life lived, the path that he might have gone down as he constructed, you know, his memories and regrets, that he's being tortured by possibility. Uh, It also, I think, explains why he's able to get so old despite so many maladies. (laughs) And it's seeming like a hundred years pass <laughs> in the yeah. terms of the world. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the, the cartoons all play into it. I think, you know, in, in the one he's parachuting down before his parachute breaks. So again, he's falling from a, from a great height mm-hmm. and that he's swallow or he's like hit on by three mermaids who kind of can represent Claire, Hazel and Tammy, but that the song lyrics that are playing are about dying and how people cried, but not his ex-wife. Mm hmm. So, uh, yeah, I just thought that was Sammy also has some supernatural qualities, including the ability to be everywhere, plus the ability to not age, which we said, and that he's impervious to being observed and that 
after he makes his successful audition, it's he's the one who moves Caden further along the path to becoming Ellen. He's the one who gives the address of Adele. And I think that it's possible that Caden will leave Purgatory through sublimation by becoming Ellen, giving up himself, letting go of the torture that he is putting himself through with the idea of all these possibilities. It's almost like us ruining Earth and going to colonize another planet. Like he fucked up the Caden project, so he's just (laughs) going to be Ellen now. That'll be a much cleaner start than (laughs) trying to fix Caden. Yeah, right. My alternative interpretation that I thought possibly had some legs, but I didn't really explore Mm -hmm. it too much, is that Caden doesn't exist and that Ellen is the real one. And, you know, when we see her crying and everything, she talks about her unhappy life and how her unfinished dreams uh, have sort of lingered over her. I think it's possible that she's looking for an escape. And so this whole thing is kind of like her daydreaming about being someone else and getting away from her shitty life. Yeah. Well, Caden is, as we said, Katard, right? Is the, yeah. And she says, you're already a stone. You're a corpse. You're not there. You're the man who wasn't there, so to speak. Right. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. But then I would want, so then I would look back through the film and see like, what's the earliest possible moment? The idea of Ellen is... It's fun. I could watch this movie through that lens, and I think I would have a fun time. Yeah, even if look, even if it doesn't even hold if up not to everything the most sinks up. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of all the things on my end. You're certainly welcome to uh, throw out any other interpretations or anything that you want to put out there. But otherwise, uh, yeah, I have no pet theories. I, I've been going hard this whole time, or hopefully, yeah. I feel I've been trying to <laughs> dispense what I feel as we go, because otherwise, yeah. I lose the train of my thought. Well. In that case, let's just sum up why we think this is a movie that is uh, interesting and worthy of discussion, since we are not confined by best horror movie ever made on this side. Oh, okay, good. That's good to know at the last second, when it's almost too late. <laughs> like some kind of Caden Catard. I'm scrolling through my notes to make sure that there are no final thoughts, and I'm like, this needs to be said. Ellen directs and the scene immediately becomes more accessible, which I think shows the value of fresh eyes to a creative process and the inverse balance between concision and clarity. That sounds smart. I'm glad I said that. (laughs) Yeah. Adele died of lung cancer last night. I love you too. Blah, blah, blah. Here we are alive for the moment. All going to die. Yeah. Okay, Mm, good. mm. Then my final thoughts are just a summation of what I've been saying throughout, which is I don't necessarily, although I do think it's fun as an exercise, don't let me stop you, but... I don't even necessarily need the what if it was all a dream or what if it was in hell because yeah. it's crazy already. <laughs> like it's it's very uh, magical realism. Magical realism, I think, is ultimately my favorite subgenre. I think that's more precise than saying sci-fi fantasy. That ends up in pop culture terms being most often expressed as sci-fi fantasy. But my true favorite, like Hundred Years of Solitude, or just the idea of you know, or or uh, as Terry Pratchett said in an interview, like fantasy as the er genre, meaning that well, all things are fantasy unless it's a biography or an autobiography because it's a, you know a projected simulacrum of something you imagined in your noodle. So not only big ups to sci-fi and fantasy, but like specifically magical realism as the broader encompassing genre. It's not used enough. Kaufman uses it here in the perfect way. To me, and I could see a lot of people not finding this movie accessible, but all I can say is 
that it's absolutely worth the effort to access. So if you've watched this movie even before and you thought, that wasn't my favorite Kaufman, I like Adaptation more, Malkovich was more fun. Yes, those things are true. Damn, this one is really, as I've blazed the path ahead of you and I can in like reassure you that you will not be wasting your time trying to resonate with this film or trying to figure out what this movie means. It's not a fucking mystery box. It's very fraught with meaning that is very clear. And I encourage you to mine your own because every time I've watched it, it's yielded new stuff where I'm like, gosh, ain't that the truth? And I'm like, damn, I didn't even notice that. The sixth time it took seven viewings. Yeah. I mean, as far as my sort of final thoughts, I did, I, I admit, I was a little hesitant to bring up these uh, sort of alternate interpretations because just saying it, it's very easy to for it to sort of come across as hack and be like, oh, they were in hell, or oh, it was Ellen really the whole time. And I don't think that there is really anything hacky about this movie. It's so textually dense. There is so much going on that you're right, it doesn't need those things. It doesn't need a pet theory. But I think that part of what makes it such an interesting piece of art to me is that it does support alternative interpretations and that it can sort of be looked at through different lenses if mm. that's how you choose to approach it. There is a lot going on in in all elements of it. The subjectivity that's going on, just being able to look at it from like, well, how much of Caden's perspective is leaking into the text of the movie it's just so great. The performances are outrageous. The production design is really cool, you know, seeing all mm-hmm. of the the sets and everything and and blurring the line between reality and fiction is really cool and they handle it in a really neat way. It's it's incredible that he was able to bring his writing to such a, a, a well-defined form for his first time out and directing it himself. I just think that it's a really spectacular work of art. And, and certainly I know that I'll be revisiting it again and again to get more and more out of it. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it. So uh, we're in plug time, Michael. Uh, anything you want to tell the people? Ah, my favorite time of the year, (laughs) harvesting plugs. Yeah, if you like my ramblings on all facets of, most facets of media, we're going to move into comic books soon. But for now, we've done music. That pod tanked. Anyway, long story short, I run a podcasting network called Small Beans. You can find it by searching Small Beans anywhere you get your podcasts. The unique thing about our feed is that you never know what you're going to get. We don't do one particular show. We do shows on whatever interests us. So we have series about the films of the Coen brothers, where the works, uh, the ad- adapted works of Stephen King, Wes movies generally. We're working on P.T. and Wes Anderson currently. And then outside of film... We are working on this new show that, well, they both episodes have been films, but soon it will diverge into comics and video games. A thing where we talk about multiverses in fiction. There's a ton. We compare episodes of Star Trek and Futurama with one another. All pop culture is up for review. And again, that's Small Beans. And if you want to find the stuff that's behind the paywall, you got to hit up patreon.com slash smallbeans. Otherwise, just search Small Beans or... If I'm sorry, it's long now because I do multiple things. <laughs> or if you like video games, search One Upsmanship. That's the other podcast I co-host with Adam Ganser on the topic of video games. That's the number one UPSmanship. Wow. Hell yeah. It's bra- That's right. It's breaking out of uh, Small Beans, right? It's no longer on the Small Beans feed. You got to search for it separately. 
PSA. Well, very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting stuff. Definitely go uh, check out Small Beans. There's a lot of great shows on there. And, uh, and yeah, I definitely encourage that. I have no plugs because you're already paying for the show. If you're you found it. This. You're here. So, yeah. Good for you. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks. Bye.